Uh, people who don't know anything at all about the Bible sometimes know one verse. In fact, I bet it's the same verse that was the first one you memorized. Uh, who could think of it? It's already up there. What's the first verse you memorized? And most of you could recite it from memory because it's one of those things that's ingrained in your long-term memory like the alphabet song, and there's just no forgetting it. Uh, you haven't, and, and, and the problem with that sometimes is we learn something so early and so often that it becomes commonplace and, and, and blasé to us, and we fail to focus in on the deeper truths or, or just, to, just to let the truth of that message wash over us once again. And so um, I read a book, more like a booklet, uh, a couple weeks ago um, by Max Locato that's based on this one verse, John 3.16. It's called the 3.16 Promise. And today's message is based on that. It's an evangelistic message based on the resurrection. Um, and uh, I've borrowed freely from his outline. Max Locato calls this verse the uh, Magna Carta of Scripture, the Hope Diamond of the Bible. He says, like... Like the Mississippi River is to the heartland of America, or like the Rosetta Stone is to an Egyptologist, uh, John 3.16 is the cornerstone of the good news. Um, he calls it a 26-word parade of hope, and I agree with that. Let's take a look at it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, a couple surprises right off in this verse, I see. Um, God loves the world. And when I think about that, I'm tempted to say, you know, this world, the one that we're in? Because as I look around, as I read the papers, as I watch the news, I see a lot that's not that lovable, a lot that's not that lovely. And I don't think our world is uh, uh, significantly better or worse than the world that Jesus came to love. Um, and yet God's response in looking at what I think are decidedly unlovely uh, people from time to time he chose to love and he loved so what did he do God so loved the world he, he did what uh, now if it were me loving the world I'd be tempted to come in and fix them uh, to bust some heads and take names and, and, and uh, give them some rules some guidelines you know I think sometimes I think the world needs like a super nanny come on in and clean us up and she teach us how to act right and yet that's not what God gave us God gave us his son and that, to me, is a little bit of a surprise, and yet, you know, it's the beauty of the gospel. So that's what we're going to look at today. God's prescription for humanity, for our heart condition, it comes in four parts. He loves, he gave, and then our part is twofold. We believe and we live. Our part is ridiculously easy, and I think that's one of the things that we, we trip up over uh, when, we come to, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at each one of these parts. God loves. Did you read that, uh, that Pluto got demoted? It's, uh, this messes with me a little bit. Um, you know, I learned the planets when I was a kid, and I didn't really expect them to change. They're planets. I, I, I wouldn't have thought that those would kind of come and go. I mean, I, I read about in history how, you know, in ancient times people didn't know about the faraway planets because they were so far away, and so it took some time for us to discover them. But once they were discovered, I didn't think they could be become unplanets. I mean, how did that happen? But a group of smart guys in Prague decided that it didn't quite measure up to planetary standards, so it's still there. It's just not called a planet anymore. They call it it's some lesser... Yeah. That's got to hurt. Uh, that's just... I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't like it thinking that, that 
scientists could just change what I know, think I know about the world just like that. But think of it from Pluto's point of view. You, you, you spend a couple of centuries thinking you're a planet, and then all of a sudden it's gone. And yet, what's that have to do with this? That's what our world does to us. You, you, you go around, and you have your dreams, you have your goals, you have your hopes, and yet sometimes people come along, and they'll just demote you. Or worse, they'll demean you. Or sometimes they'll mistreat you, and sometimes even abuse you. Yet, in the face of all that, it's to you especially, if you've been in that situation, that, that Jesus says these words, God loves you. Now, it's hard for us to get that sometimes because we love that word love, and we overuse it so much that we sometimes dilute it. You know, we use the word to refer to you know, our snack foods that, that we enjoy or our, our favorite collection of oversized men wearing the same shirt. Um, and and our, our football team is the one we love, or our basketball team is the one we love. And yet, these are the, the, the use of it in that way is just a, I mean, it doesn't come anywhere close to God's love. When God loved, it's different from the way we love each other. Yeah, I'm a human with all my sin, and so when I love, as much as I want to try to love in a godly and, and totally giving way, there's some take to my love, isn't there? I want to love my wife as purely and completely and as one way as possible. But if there's no love coming back in this direction, then we've got a problem. And ultimately, you know, I'm human and self-centered enough that I'm going to, uh, going to notice and, and notice the lack and, and kind of uh, and there'll, there'll be trouble. And, and most of us are that way in our relationships. You know, we want to love like Christ loved, and yet we also want to be loved back in return. And yet God's love was totally one way. What in the world would possess Jesus to leave the throne of heaven and to come down and, and you know, enter the womb of a you know, regular, normal, unwed mother? Not a normal one. <laughs> Hers was a little different. Uh, but uh, I just picture him. He was present at the creation, scattering the stars, and yet... As a teenager, he's sweeping up sawdust in his dad's carpentry shop. Now, what kind of love would possess him to do that? And then, I mean, it gets worse. He is the only one who lived a pure and sinless life, and yet hypocrites mock him and scorn him. And then, of course, they torture him to death. And so what in the world? He knew what was coming. What would possess him to do that? It's a love that's beyond the love that I understand and beyond the love that I know how to give. Why did he come? Why did he endure that? It wasn't to get anything. It was just to give. Ephesians 5.2 says this. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So he gave himself up for us. Your goodness cannot win God's love. Neither can your badness lose God's love. But you can resist it. And oftentimes, I think in our society, we do see people resisting God's love. And I think they do it honestly. I think we tend to be too judgmental of people like that. But I think it's fear more than conviction sometimes that leads people to do that. Because here's what I mean by that. Many of us have faced rejection. And the more you face, the harder it is to deal with the next one. And it makes you kind of skittish and jumpy. Um, like my mom's cat. 
I don't know if any of you have ever met the cat. I'm sorry, Mom. Uh, in fact, I, I, I had to ask Gina in the first service because I, I, I didn't really remember if the cat had a name. Uh, the Demings all call him, I'll call her Devil Cat or, or Damien or some kind of variation on that theme. I think she really does have a name that, that, that my mom calls her. What is her name? Okay. Well, the, um, <laughs> the, um, it, it wasn't so much loathing that we had for the cat as fear. And I'm talking about a pretty desperate fear. Um, uh, for years when we go visit my mom, the routine would be that she'd lock the cat away and, and the cat, she has her own room, um, but she'd be locked there so that she, you know, none, of the, none of us would be threatened by her. But all of us have stories. I, know, I don't know if Allison has one of these, but Andrew, Gene, and me, where we showed up sometime and, and the cat wasn't put away, and we were attacked. Uh, and I, I mean, she, she hurt us a little bit. Uh, she'd scratch and claw and bite and mostly terrorize, just kind of hiss. And I can remember one time she was in the bathroom, and it was one of those bathroom, locked in the bathroom, it was one of those bathroom doors that didn't quite meet to the floor. And so we'd see her paw coming out <laughs> under there, just, just kind of spooking us, you know. <laughs> and so anyway, we have some animal lovers in the room. Why would a cat behave this way? I, I don't know the cir circumstances from which she was r rescued when Teresa got her, but I suspect that there's some, some mistreatment in, a, in, in this cat's history, that, that cats don't just decide to, to torment humans, that they, they're scared. And I think she's scared. And there's a happy end to this story, at least for me. I, I don't know if I brought the rest of the family along yet. But after my mom's surgery, I, I spent more time over at her house than, than what's routine. And so I decided, you know, I prayed for courage, and I decided just to face down my fears. And I decided there wasn't any need for the cat to be quarantined when I came over to the house, that I'd, I'd just have to, to survive, you know, live with it. And here's the cool thing. At first, it was kind of where we each kind of kept an eye on one another. But after two, three weeks of that, um, the cat, one time I was taking a nap and the cat jumped up in my lap and just stayed there like a cat's supposed to do. Uh, no hissing, no turning on me or anything like that. And then another time, you know that thing how a cat will sometimes force you to pet her by you know, putting her head into your leg and just kind of rubbing real close? Well, she started doing that to me. And, uh, and I didn't hurt her, I didn't, you know, I didn't taunt her, and she found I wasn't going to reject her or torment her. And like, yeah, we're buds now. Uh, and uh, I, I remember when I first told Al, uh, Gina and Andrew, they were, they were shocked and, uh, and really proud uh, that, uh, of my courage. But uh, my point is this. this, this cat is a picture of unbelievers. They're not the enemy. They're hostages. They're not... We have an enemy, and it's not people who don't believe like we do. People who don't believe like we do are people who have been beaten down by life in many cases. They faced one bit of mistreatment or rejection after another, and they think you and your religion are just one more example of that, that if they dare to put their hope in what you're selling, that they're going to get their dreams crushed one more time, and they just can't bear that. And so sometimes I think the people who are most adamant in their unbelief it's to me it, it seems oftentimes to come more from fear than from conviction and that's that's the world we live in and so knowing that I think ought to give us a little more compassion 
uh, for folks who, who don't see it our way. Others will demote and demean you, even mistreat and abuse you. But in the face of all that, God claims you as his own. And he says to you, hear him say this today, you are part of my plan. So first, God loved. Secondly, God gave. Picture a trip to the doctor. Let's go to a special doctor today. Let's go see the cardiologist. And the cardiologist says to you, you got a problem. You got a bad heart. Your heart is weak. Your heart is frail. Your heart is diseased. And then picture this. The cardiologist doesn't prescribe the normal treatment. The cardiologist says, guess what? My heart is sturdy and my heart is pure. Let's trade. I'll give you my heart. And that's exactly what's happened. That's why Jesus is called the great physician. And he says to you, yeah, your heart is messed up. Your heart is diseased. It will kill you. And yet my heart's pure. In fact, it's the only one that's pure. And I'll exchange with you. The skeptic says oftentimes, I don't need that. I don't know what you Christians are talking about. Um, People in our world today, I think, often will admire the teachings of Jesus, appreciate the example that he set, but dying on the cross to save me from my sins. I mean, I, I've heard, I've read accounts in literature. I've seen people on talk shows saying, I don't need that. I don't need your God to die for me. I'm a good guy. I'm a good husband. Work and make a decent living. Why do I need that for? Well, let's take a look at the, the scriptures and give ourselves a hard exam. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things, and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Mark 7, 21 and 22 says, For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Now, it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus said this, about 1,900 years ago when Mark wrote it down. Are they describing a world that's dramatically different from our world? Take a look at the list. Uh, it's not like those things have gone out of fashion uh, in the 21st century, have they? In fact, it's a pandemic. Romans 3, 10 and 11 says this, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Romans 3:23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This generation is large, mostly silent on the subject of sin. You don't hear the word sin used a lot in common conversation. Um, but the... The concept hasn't gone away. You know, the behavior hasn't gone away. We just don't use the name that much. We may not call it that, but it's still all around us. And you know, Read the news. Look at the, uh, look at the papers. And the guy who thinks he's doing okay can deceive himself into thinking that by comparing himself with another guy who's not doing as well. We can always find a loser who's worse, th- worse off than we are, right? Um, and, and that will enable us to persist in our denial. But our standard is Jesus. And we compare to, when we compare to Jesus, we find that we just don't measure up. In, in light of the example of Jesus, the guy that says, yeah, I'm doing okay, I'm a good person, uh, comes off as very puny, and those claims kind of weak. Jesus made a bunch of claims about himself that would define him as one or the other, either divine or just plain nuts. Right? Remember this, if anybody else says to you the things that Jesus said, run away. Uh, normal guys, good teachers don't claim to be the only way to heaven. 
They don't claim to be one with the Father. They don't claim to be the path to salvation. Jesus made another claim about himself that kind of sets him apart. He says he's, he claimed to be without sin. Now, which of us is going to make that claim? In John 8, 46, Jesus said this, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Imagine, what if I asked that? What if I said, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Now, some of my family is here. This is kind of laughable. Um, would any of you like to stand here and say, Who can prove me guilty of sin? Now, we have some visitors here. You know, there might be some people in this room who we couldn't prove guilty of sin just based on our knowledge, but... Uh, I wouldn't want to stand in front of a group that knows me um, and say that. Jesus stood before Pilate, the, the, the leading Roman official in the, in the province, and Pilate found him to be free from sin. Peter traveled with him, lived and worked with him very closely for three years. And here's what he said. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Can anyone follow me around for three years and say that? Can anyone follow you around for three years and say that? Compared to the standard of Jesus, you know, our claims of righteousness just come off as puny. But how does Jesus respond to your sin? Can a cardiologist look at your diseased heart and say, well, you know, I like you, so I'm just going to pretend that it's not there? How's that going to work? Uh, can a holy God overlook your sin, your sinfulness as just a childish, childish mistake? No, God is the one and only judge. His words are decrees. They're not opinions. His words are truth. Let's hear him. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, this is a, a plain but unmistakable message. The hard-hearted towards God will not be residents of heaven. This all paths lead to heaven kind of tolerance in our world today just does, doesn't match up with the truth of Scripture. Matthew 5, 8 says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Well, how do I get that pure heart? I'm not going to overdo this today. I'm going to give you one Greek word to swallow. It's hyper. And this is a word we kind of use in our society today, but it, does not mean the, it doesn't mean in the New Testament what we think it means or what we use it as. It means in place of or on behalf of. It's most often translated just as for, um, but it implies an exchange. I'll show it to you three times in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15.3, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for, that's it, for our sins according to the scriptures. Galatians 1, 3, and 4. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for, that's it, for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. So Jesus exchanged hearts with you. He took your diseased and damaged heart and invited God to punish it, and, and a holy and righteous judge did. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You're more than acquitted. You didn't get off on a technicality. You're innocent. You don't enter heaven with a repaired heart, but with the heart of Jesus, with his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That's the gospel. That's the very good news. So God loved, he gave. What do we do? We believe. Sometimes it's hard to trust. And yet every day, we put our trust in things that we didn't really, like none of you built those chairs. 
but still you trusted him to hold you. That takes less of a leap of faith today than it did when uh, in the early days of our church. Can anybody remember the old chairs? That was that was a uh, it took a leap of faith, and I remember you know guys my size we had to kind of test it to make sure before it was a before we put our trust in it. Raise your hand if you've been to the Gateway Arch in St. Louis. Um, I love going. Did you go up inside? Um, it's a really cool view from up there, and it's a it's a it's a pretty tall building, and it's 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 an arch, and going up inside is a bit of an adventure. Um, it was built in the early '60s, and as far as I know, the access to the top is the same. When I was there, it was the original, and they said that kind of with pride, as if we'd like that. But I'm thinking it's probably time for an upgrade. How about you know rebuild? But if you can picture a Ferris wheel that's kind of inside a darkened tube, um, that's kind of how they get you up to the top. And in fact, they get you in, in these little pods that hold about six people, uh, six genus-sized people more than six of me-sized people. Uh, so if you've got any claustrophobia issues, that'll get you. And then a couple other things sort of add to the fear for me. There were creepy sound effects. Um, uh, maybe if you've been on here, maybe you can recall, but it, was, it would go up, it would kind of shift position, it would go like, all the way to the top and then can anyone back me up on that anybody remember that part of it um, and then uh, I, I'm sure they were old enough to hold jobs but it seemed to me like the National Park Service people who took our money were just little kids I mean they were they no part of that inspired confidence in me and yet yeah I kind of believed kind of the system I figured the Park Service would be you know use a normal means to check it out. Uh, I do the same thing when I uh, uh, ride like theme park rides. Like I trust Six Flags and Disney to do a good job with their rides and to check them out. But I uh, used to live across the street from the Wickham Park Pavilion where they put up the little like rogie festivals, you know, the ones I'm talking about, where these carnies will stay up all night putting together uh, um, rides. I don't have a lot of faith in those. And it's not the equipment I don't trust, it's the people, right? Uh, it's the faith is based on our object. Um, I'll tell one other story, but uh, I, I doubt if uh, any of the rest of you have been here, but raise your hand if you have Grutas de Garcia. It's, uh, I know my mom was there. She, was, she and Gina were with me when, when I was there. It's um, a cave, caverns, on the side of a mountain just outside of Monterey, Mexico. And it's sort of like Carlsbad Caverns or Mammoth Cave. It's these caves you go inside. Yet, it was kind of high up a mountain, and you had to take an incline railway, a rather steep one, to get to it. And, uh, you know, when I ride rides like that in the United States, I think, oh, government regulations and insurance company rules, they can be kind of burdensome, but they also provide kind of a safety net, and I trust in that. And yet, you know, barefoot kid riding up on a mule operates this machine, and, it, and all of a sudden I'm just not as confident as I was before. And, uh, and yet it was worth the ride, and it, it, uh, it, it did great and no problems. I just it, it took just a little more of a leap of faith. And yet... My point is this, we do that every day. You know, we turn the ignition, we trust it's going to turn on. I don't really understand how that works. I get in an airplane, the science is still a little over my head. It's really heavy. I don't get that exactly. And yet, I believe it. And I've you know, been in planes several times, I'll go in them again, I don't think about it, I don't have any fear of it, because I trust. And yet, Jesus is calling us to trust him. 
John 3.14, the passage just before John 3.16, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. What's it take? What's our part? Just believe. It seems too easy. We expect a more complicated cure. Ben Franklin said God helps those who help themselves. Is that true? Is that in the Bible? It's absolutely not in the Bible, and yet it's conventional wisdom, and even people who claim to believe in salvation by faith through grace alone will oftentimes try to perform their way into heaven, too, just as kind of a backup plan. You know, God, I believe you. I believe you're going to save me, but just be on the safe side. I'm going to do everything right, too, um, and I'm kind of, kind of saved myself along the way. We try to fix ourselves with good works or with contributions, but only trust Jesus. That's all he's calling you to do. But remember, Jesus is inviting you to trust him, but only him. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It would have been more politically correct if Jesus had said, I know the way, or I'll show you the way. But hear what he said, I am the way. Peter said it this way in his sermon in Acts 4, 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, we live in a day where tolerance is celebrated as one of the greatest virtues, and yet all approaches to heaven cannot be correct. They're mutually exclusive. They conflict with one another. Uh, if, if there's a faith that says, that denies that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, then it's not compatible with our faith. Um, most other world religions involve some kind of formula through which you save yourself through performance. But Jesus says, my death saves you. 1 Corinthians 1, 8, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 says, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. All world religions can't be right. The, all paths don't lead to heaven. In fact, we wouldn't put up with such an illogical supposition. You, know, you hear people on talk shows and in their writings say, well, I just believe that there are many paths to God. And yet, would you go to an airport looking for a ticket to Atlanta and say, well, you know, I just believe there are many flights to Atlanta. I'll just I'll just choose the one that's got the best seats, or I like the food on this one. Um, that's, it, it strikes me as surprising that we would be so cavalier with our eternal destiny. This is a place that seems to me like we ought to be sure the ticket's going to take us where we're going, where we want to go. Jesus, in John 6, 29, Jesus said, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So believe in yourself? No, believe in Jesus. That's, that's your way. And then finally, we live. God loved, God gave, we believe, and we live. Many of you I know have had the experience of seeing your dreams die. Uh, my dream of being a center fielder for the Baltimore Orioles was crushed just, just brutally. Uh, I was 13 years old, 15-year-old with a mustache, just mowed me down, and uh, I had no chance of hitting him. Uh, and uh, I tried. I played, I played baseball all that year and then retired from that and switched to uh, church league softball where I enjoyed a couple happy decades. Uh, but, uh, but when I realized I wasn't good enough to play baseball at any higher level than what I'd gotten to, uh, it was sad for me. Uh, and yet all of you have had that experience in somehow, some way or another. Some of you have found out that Mr. Wright was just a two-time in Laos. And others of you found that that job promotion that you thought was going to be the answer turned out to be a little cubicle in the basement, and it wasn't so great. Some of you moved long ways at great expense to find 
life more expensive and with fewer friends than what you left from. And so many of us live this sort of if-only kind of existence. If only I can do this, if only I can gain that, if only my kids turn out all right, if only I could get more money, if only I could get a better house or a better car or a better girlfriend or whatever, then everything would be okay. And yet what we often find very sadly is we get that if only satisfied and then we're still there in the same dissatisfied place. Sometimes that dissatisfaction leads to disappointment, even despair, sometimes even a downward spiral of addiction. Life is full of letdowns. How do you know that Jesus isn't one of those? How do you know that if you haven't made a decision of faith in Jesus, how do you know that this isn't just one more disappointment along a lifetime of disappointments? Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living, living being. Jesus offers to reconnect you with God. Our culture defines humanity as both less than what the Bible does and also more than what the Bible does. God breathed life into you. He breathed the soul into you. You are his offspring. Yet our culture today says, they're just mammals doing what mammals do. Or, on the other hand, you're also the arbiters of truth. You get to decide what's right and wrong. And if it's right and wrong for you, then, it's, then that's right. Well, the Bible denies both of those. You are the offspring of God. He gave you a soul because he intended to have fellowship with you. And yet he's the arbiter of truth. He's God. And I'm one of his creations. And so our culture kind of denies that truth in both directions. Before the disobedience in the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God. They followed him like sheep. And check this, they were naked and unashamed. They had perfect intimacy with God, perfect fellowship. Yet one stubborn act stained their souls, and it didn't bring them peace, it brought them panic. In Genesis 3.10, Adam said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He no longer, he was separated from God now. Now, I wonder sometimes, why didn't he ask for forgiveness then? But he didn't, and God banished him from the garden. Genesis 3.23, the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. And we've been loitering outside the gates of paradise ever since. We try to satisfy and look for temporary substitutes, but ultimately they fail. Ephesians 2.1 says, as for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. Ephesians 4.18 says they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now Jesus steps in here with an invitation to restore fellowship with God. 1 John 5.1 says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves the child as well. John 1, 12 and 13 says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. How can you trust this? 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven from you. This is what Easter's about. It's the resurrection that shows that we can trust this. It convinced the first believers to follow, to totally turn their lives upside down, to plant a new church, to start a new religion, to change the world. We can trust Jesus because he's been there. Everywhere you've been and everywhere you're going, he's been. Jesus has experienced death, not as a visitor at a funeral, but as the corpse at a funeral. And yet he conquered death. Now you and I, we haven't been to the grave yet but we're going. And don't you see 
that when we go there, before we go there, we need to know somebody who knows the way out. If you're going to explore a cave or go dive in, under, in a cave, you'd want an experienced guide who knew what it was like and knew the way out. Well, before I go into the cave of death, I want to have a relationship with Jesus because he's been there and he knows the way out. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10 says, This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I apologize for the typo. Most of the time, my typos don't make much difference, and I'm all responsible for that. But when you change immortality to immorality, it really changes the meaning of the verse. So let me make sure I'm plain on that. Jesus destroyed death and brought life and immortality. Okay. I brought immorality. He gave immortality. Right? So how are you going to respond to all this? Uh, Max Lucado tells a story about driving in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, I've never been there myself, but I understand 300-year-old roads crisscrossed in the city in kind of an illogical way. If you've been there, maybe you've seen pictures of it, you know how to get your bearings in Rio de Janeiro. As you look up in the sky, what do you see? There's this big honking statue of Jesus uh, overlooking the city of Rio de Janeiro. And from wherever you are in the city, you can see it and get your bearings. And that's, that's a metaphor, I think, for our lives today. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, enjoying intimacy with God and waiting for us. John 14.2 says, Jesus said this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. He's been there. He is there where we're going. Matthew 10.29-31, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very heads of your, your, the hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. You can trust God. He cares for you. Matthew 6, 8, Jesus said, Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. I've never been to Rio, but I've been to Washington, D.C. a bunch of times. And a couple weeks ago, my students were getting ready to go to Washington, D.C. on a trip, and they asked me questions about what they'd see. And I, I turned around, drew a map up on the board, and told them, you know, if you're standing here, you can look that way, and you'll see this, and you can look that way, and you'll see that. Well, how did I know? Because I've been so many times. How does Jesus know? Because he's been where you're going. He's been where you've been. And he knows the way. When Jesus was teaching, they reacted to his teaching. Matthew 7, it says this, The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. He does have the authority to show you the way. We're going to finish with this passage. In Matthew 11:27. Jesus said, All things have been committed to be by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Is Jesus boasting in his knowledge that we don't have? No, he's sharing it with us. He doesn't keep his knowledge. He reveals it. And he finishes this, this thought with an invitation. Matthew 11:28 28 and 29. Jesus says, Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We need this. We live in a world that seems to know so much, and yet for the most important things, it seems like we know as little as ever. Let Jesus teach you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And Lord, we thank you for this truth. Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice. And, and I thank you for your, the example you set of victory over death. 
Lord, we claim this promise. Um, we look forward to an eternal destiny with you, and Lord, we, uh, we pledge our lives between now and heaven uh, to live them according to your will. Uh, God, show us how we can make an impact in the world we're in, how we can help, uh, help draw other people to you. Lord, help us to live lives of love that make people curious about you. Please use our lives as bridges uh, between you and a world that needs you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.